Well, it is a privilege to be here this morning. I'm very thankful uh, to get to know Joshua, to get to know the members of the search committee and everyone else the past two days. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know everyone else as well. What I'd like to do is read our passage for today and then pray and then get started. So if you would, would you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Here's what Paul says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts this morning to understand the mystery of Christ. I pray you would be with my mouth that I would say things that are beneficial for the building up of your body, the church. I pray you would be with everyone else here, that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Many of you are probably familiar with the New York Times bestseller list. It's just a weekly report in the New York Times of the best-selling books in America. It's fair to say if you write a book and you want people to read it, you hope and pray it shows up on that list. Now what's interesting to me is to look at the trends over the years for the best-selling books in America. I think it can tell us quite a bit about us. What kind of books do we read? And if you were to look at the stats, what you would see is that two types of books consistently dominate the New York Times bestseller list. And those are romance novels and thriller or mystery novels. Romance and mystery. But in the past 10 years, mystery novels have won. More mystery novels have shown up on the New York Times bestseller list in the past 10 years than any other type of book. Apparently, Americans have a huge appetite for mystery. Now, if you're a fan of this type of book, or if you ever read one, you know they follow a predictable pattern. There's a problem, often a crime, that needs to be solved. There are interesting characters, some who are very zealous for the truth, and others who we're not so sure about. There is suspense and foreshadowing that take, takes up most of the book. And then at the end, there's the resolution, when the crime is solved and the mystery is revealed. Now, almost everyone who picks up one of these books knows this ahead of time, yet we keep coming back for more. Why? Why are millions and millions of these books sold every year? Well, here's my theory. Mystery novels draw upon a universal human experience. Real life is often a mystery. 
There are things we just don't understand. There are problems, both with us, with other people, and with the world that we just cannot solve. Yet we know that in the midst of our crazy and often unexplainable lives, we can have this little sliver of satisfaction, a story that presents a mystery and then solves it for us right before our eyes. We love mystery novels because they satisfy a deep longing in the human soul, the longing for final resolution. Well, friends, I believe there's good news in Colossians chapter 2 today because Paul is not writing a mystery novel. Rather, he is a witness to the truth about reality. In these verses, he affirms our suspicion that life is indeed a mystery. In fact, he says it's God's mystery. But then he also proclaims that God has resolved it. Jesus Christ really is the answer you're looking for. So these are the two main ideas in our passage today. Number one, that God's mystery, the mystery behind all the other mysteries, is Christ. And number two, that in Christ, he has given us everything we need, both now and forever. Let's explore these two ideas together, and then I'll end with some applications today I hope are beneficial for you in the new year. So first, God's mystery is Christ. The mystery behind all the other mysteries is Christ. Notice Paul opens this chapter by talking about a great struggle he has, but it's not a physical struggle. Now, Paul's had his share of physical struggles. You can read about them in 2 Corinthians 11 and other places. In fact, it may be the case that Paul struggled or suffered physically more than any other Christian who's ever lived. But here, Paul is talking about a different kind of struggle. It's the struggle of trying to communicate truth from his heart to the hearts of these young Christians. I think we all probably have this kind of experience of an emotional and relational struggle. Now, I'm looking forward to getting to know this congregation. I'm, I'm sure that some of you excel at a kind of physical struggle. Maybe you're a rabid crossfitter, or maybe you can hike 15 miles a day or, or run a marathon. But we all know, if we're honest, the greatest struggles in our lives are when we're sitting across the table from someone we love, trying to communicate truth, and getting them to understand it. Trying to get these people the right clues to see the story, where the story of their life is headed. Now this is Paul's struggle. He wants to give the gift of deep understanding to the people he loves. Now he gives us in this passage both the what and the why of his struggle. He tells them what he wants them to understand, and he tells them why he wants them to understand it. You can see that in verses 2 and 4, the why. But for now, let's focus on the what. What is Paul trying to get these Christians to understand? He says it's the mystery of Christ. What does that mean? What I want you to see is that his answer, this phrase, is both wonderfully simple and inexhaustibly deep. It's wonderfully simple and inexhaustibly deep at the same time. It's simple because Paul says God's mystery, the key to understanding life, is a person, the man Christ Jesus, a living, breathing human being just like you. So the meaning of life is not found 
by solving complex calculus equations. Life is not a philosophical riddle only for the wise to understand. You don't succeed at life and find meaning only if you have enough strength or money or success or fame. The meaning of life has come to us and it has a name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's simple enough for a child to understand. But of course, Paul's answer is also profoundly deep. Because Jesus Christ is not a mere man. He's the eternal Son of God. He's the God-man. He's an inseparable union of the divine and human in one person, both fully God and fully man. You may not have thought about that in a while, but that is indeed a mystery. But it's a wonderful mystery, because what the church has always confessed is that though this may be confounding, it's good news, because in this mystery, we find salvation. Imagine walking into a friend's house and you see a 5,000-piece puzzle strewn across the table. And your friend says to you, come on, let's tackle this, me and you. Now, if you agree, the first thing you're going to want to know is what? Where's the box? Where's the picture? What image are we trying to put together? Without that, we don't stand a chance. And what Paul is teaching here in Colossians 2 is that God has graciously given us the image that solves the mystery of life, and it is Christ. But more than that, it's Christ on a cross. This is exactly what Paul teaches elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 2 concerning this mystery. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Amazing. The world and the spiritual forces of evil are playing checkers, and God is playing chess. The cross of Christ, a place of deep shame and humiliation in the eyes of the world, is the place where God brings his light and life and love to the world. It's the place where all God's promises are kept. His promise to atone for sin. His promise to give new life. His promise to dwell with his people and renew the entire universe. It's the place where his plan for his people is finally realized. And it's the place where the broken pieces of our lives are brought back together and made whole. And where everything else makes sense. Outside of Christ, there's just endless puzzle pieces with no box. There's no hope. You can try to gather a couple together and make your own picture, but it won't be the real one, and it won't be satisfying. Jesus Christ really is the center of reality because he is the place where God and man are reconciled. Notice what Paul says next. God's mystery is Christ, and in him are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So God has revealed the answer. It's Christ. And his life, death, and resurrection are on display for the whole world to see. But it also says he's hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. What does this mean? Why, after speaking of the revelation of Christ, does Paul go back and say things are hidden? This answer leads us to our second main idea for the day. In Christ, we really do have everything we need, both now and forever. We really do. And it'll take each one of us our entire lives to understand this. You see, the sad truth is is that even after Christ is revealed, for some, he remains hidden. It's not because God has held back wisdom and knowledge from us. It's not because the knowledge of Christ is too high for anyone to ever attain. Christ does not stand at the tip of heaven commanding man to climb a ladder, work hard, and be very smart if they want to reach God. But he may be too low for us. He may remain hidden to some because they will not stoop to that level. They will not look for wisdom and knowledge in an obscure Jewish man who was crucified on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. The Bible says God took on the form of a servant. He died the death of a criminal on a cross. And the New Testament essentially says, if you want it, here it is, right here on your level. If you want true wisdom and knowledge, if you want to know who God is, why you exist, and what's the meaning of life, here it is. God became a poor Jewish man and died on a cross for you. So God's mystery is not hidden from all human beings, but it is hidden from proud human beings. Remember what Psalm 10 says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. Remember Proverbs 13.30, where it says, there are those, how lofty are their eyelids, how high their eyelids lift. Some people look up into the heavens and say, I belong there, up above everybody else, up with God. And they cannot see the God who came down here to save them. For some, a God on a cross is just not the God they want. This would mean an end to their self-salvation project. It would mean an end to their exalted view of themselves and of the human race. It would mean putting to death the God of their imagination and humbly accepting the God who is there, seeking and saving the lost. Now, my favorite novel of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. If you have read it or have not read it, you should consider doing so, but spoiler alert, it's too good an illustration not to use. The Count of Monte Cristo is a story set in the 1800s in France. It's about a promising young man, a 19-year-old young man named Edmond Dantes. He's up and coming in his career. He's about to be made captain of his own ship. He's also about to marry the love of his life, a beautiful young woman named Mercedes. Tragically, he is betrayed by his best friend, who wants his girl, and by his shipmate, who wants his job. They conspire against him and falsely accuse him of treason on trumped-up charges, and he's sentenced to life in one of France's worst prisons. 
While he's languishing in prison, Edmond meets an old French priest who is also a prisoner, the Abbe Feria. Now in the book, Feria is called the Mad Priest because he claims to know the location of a vast treasure, enough to make someone a billionaire. And he continually offers large portions of it to the guards if they'll only set him free. Of course, no one believes him. He's a simple priest. He's a prisoner at that. He's never taken seriously, even though he continually offers this treasure to these men if they'll let him go. Well, Edmond gets to know this priest throughout his time in prison, and he realizes he's a man of immense learning. More than that, he's incredibly wise. He helps Edmond understand who betrayed him and why. In fact, Edmond comes to love him because he realizes he's a good and innocent man. Well, eventually the priest reaches the point of death, and before he does, he tells Edmond where the treasure is on the island of Monte Cristo. Edmond then uses the priest's death as an opportunity to escape, and after 14 years in prison, escapes and heads straight to the island. And wouldn't you know it? There it is. Inside a cave, a vast amount of treasure beyond the imagination. Edmond goes from prisoner in a dungeon to a billionaire overnight. Now the rest of the story is about how he uses his wealth to avenge his enemies, avenge himself on his enemies. But you would see at the end of the story it has a deeper lesson. What's interesting for me and fascinating is to think about this novel in relation to Colossians chapter 2, particularly the part about the treasure. It was there all along sitting right there in that cave, and the mad priest offered it to countless people if only they would set him free, if only they would believe him. I think it's appropriate to view Paul in this passage like the mad priest. Let's call him the mad apostle. Only, he's offering you a treasure of infinitely more value than mere gold and jewels. He's offering you eternal life, reconciliation with God, a resurrected body, a love that never ends, a glorious eternal inheritance beyond anything you can imagine. And it's all right there. It's in Christ. If only you would believe him and come to him. It's hidden in the sense that it's too good to be true. But for those who seek it, it's there. An endless stream of blessings from an infinite God come in the flesh to bless you. And it's everything you need, both now and forever. Now, understanding the hidden nature of this mystery is especially important because of what Paul says next, if you look at verse 4. He says, I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. A plausible argument is something that on the surface seems right, but hidden underneath is a massive error that will shipwreck your life. In the context of this passage, a plausible argument would be something that detracted from what Paul just stated, that God's mystery is Christ and in him you have everything you need both now and forever. And like in the first century, plausible arguments are everywhere today. They generally take the form of either adding to or subtracting from Christ. 
So a plausible argument might be something like this. Yeah, uh, Jesus is great and all, but, but Jesus alone is not enough to make you complete and secure. I mean, come on, we live in the modern age. Are you, are you set financially? Do you, have you made something of your life? Have you made your mark on the world? Do people know who you are? Are you up to date on all the most popular teachings from the most popular people? Have you taken care of yourself first? Are you focusing enough on your needs? Have you found the love of your life? Have you found your purpose? Now, we know that many of these things are not evil in themselves, but they're so often sold as something that can take the place of Christ, meaning they can give you ultimate rest and final satisfaction, and therefore they're worthy of your devotion and constant attention. And that's a lie. All you really need, both now and forever, is Christ alone. Now, some plausible arguments try to take away from Christ. So some will say, yeah, people used to believe in Jesus, but I mean, now we believe in science. Uh, you know, Jesus is not who Christians say he is. He's just another spiritual guide alongside all the other wise teachers in history. And other people will say, you know, we each have our, to find our own path and to make our own way. And Jesus is just one of those paths for some people. And still others will say, actually, I think, you know, I think technology will save us. Eventually, scientists will make it so that we don't have to die and people won't be poor and all strife and violence in society will, will end. All of these arguments are plausible on the surface, but underneath they're deeply, deeply deceptive because they deny the only hope for a sinful humanity, God's mystery, that is Christ. This is God's solution. This is his answer. Have you ever gone to someone with a problem and you're pouring out your heart to them? You're revealing a burden you have only to discover that they have the same problem you do. In fact, theirs is worse and now they start confessing to you. And you sit there and you go, hmm, not helpful, right? <laughs> That's what it's like to seek spiritual help, to seek to satisfy the deepest need of your soul in something outside of Christ. There's just more problems. We need help from the outside. We need help from above. And Christ came down from heaven. He's the only true treasure. I want to end today by talking about the benefits that flow from this mystery and how we can receive them. Here's the main application today. If you're a Christian and you find yourself bored with Jesus, as humbly as possible, I would just want to say I would love to reintroduce you to the real Jesus. I mean, he is God's mystery. That means a never-ending supply of wonder and riches from the infinite mind and heart of God. You can't get bored with him, not if you truly know him. You can only drift away from him or stop seeking him. I think it would be good for all of us to start the new year by meditating on this idea of mystery. What would it mean for you to really believe that Jesus is the mystery of God? If you're here today, 
or listening to this and you know deep down you're really not a Christian. It may be that you think you have Jesus and Christianity pretty well figured out. You know what's there and you're not really interested. It's not for you. Can I just suggest that maybe you don't really know what's there? Maybe you've heard the good news, but like the guards in the Count of Monte Cristo, you couldn't believe something like that. Maybe you have not seen or tasted the true treasure that's in Christ. The testimony of scripture and millions and millions of Christians across the ages is that no one ever lived, no one ever spoke like this man. He is different and he's from a different place, the kingdom of God, and he can give you something that no one else can. So come to him and find forgiveness of sins and rest for your soul. For Christians here, how would it change your life if you view Jesus as the best mystery story ever told? Later in Colossians, Paul speaks about Christians growing up into Christ, something we prayed about this morning. When you think of Christianity this way, you realize believing in Jesus is not the end of the matter. It's really only just the beginning. Now the fun, now the journey really begins. You believe the treasure is there, now you get to explore how much there really is, and you get to claim some for yourself. These treasures won't gain you worldly success and fame, but they will change you into the person God made you to be. So seek him out, and don't waste this year by ignoring the treasure, the infinite treasure you have in Christ. How do we do this? One way to answer that question is to see how did the first Christians do it? What did they do? How did they live? Let's consider just one verse at the end of Acts 2. And here's what Luke writes at the end of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. These verses teach that Christ is primarily found in the word, the scriptures that testify to him as the final revelation of God to mankind. So make it your goal this year to soak yourself in the Bible and good Christian teaching, and there you will find the mystery of Christ. Christ is also found in the fellowship between God's people, those who live by his spirit and speak his words to one another. Make it your goal this year to invest in other people because no matter what else goes on this year, and I'm sure there will be a lot of things going on, we know for certain what God will be doing this year and he will be building his church one person at a time, adding new stones and fortifying and building up the stones that already exist. So why not join him in that building project because it's the only one that'll last. Christ is also found in the Lord's Supper as we gather around the table together to confess our sins and receive his body and blood for our salvation. The Lord's Supper, like the mystery of Christ, is also a mystery because in it, we genuinely spiritually partake of Christ. And of course, in prayer, because through Christ we have access to God. 
we can bring him every petition and request knowing that he hears us and responds when we ask in faith. Now through all these normal things, I want you to see that God accomplishes his will in your life. And, and what is it exactly that he accomplishes? Well, you can see some of it in verse 2. If you'll look at Colossians 2.2, 2, he says that your heart will be encouraged, will be knit together in love, and you'll reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So you get an encouraged heart, you get your heart knit together in love with other Christians, and you get a mind that's full of understanding. And this is what we all really need this year. God pours out the resolution we ultimately seek into our hearts and minds when we fix our eyes on the mystery of Christ. And then your heart and mind will agree that this is the answer that I'm really looking for. Now Paul ends this section by rejoicing to see the firmness of the church's faith in Christ. There's nothing more encouraging for a pastor than to see people who genuinely have a deep love and trust in Christ and they know he is everything they need, both now and forever. So I pray that you would devote yourself to these very normal things in order that God would do something extraordinary in your life this year, that he would open the eyes of your heart to see and be transformed by the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have given us everything we need in Christ. We know this, yet we need to know it more. We need more of him. We need endurance and patience in the Christian life. We need a passion to seek you where you may be found. We need protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Give it to us, Lord, in Christ. And these things we ask in faith, in Jesus' name, amen.